Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dad, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, nothing much. Uh, recovering from Thanksgiving, doing a little detox, you know, mm-hmm. getting mm-hmm. my life back in order after I ate too much sweet potato pie. <laughs> yeah, man, Thanksgiving. I know we talked about that last podcast, man. Just It's the move, you know, getting ready to eat. So getting our bodies ready and then afterwards trying to recover from it. Mm-hmm. Next Up north, do y'all eat sweet potato pie pumpkin pie? Whoa, relax. (laughs) (laughs) That's not, that is not a regional thing. All right. That's that's a race thing. (laughs) I was just making sure because I I didn't know. Yeah. (laughs) It is that pumpkin pie. No way. Uh, But uh, yeah, sweet potato pie all day. I don't Uh, even know if I've ever, I'm trying to think, have I ever had a pumpkin pie? Do, it actually does have. taste similar. It's not the same. It, it, I know they it, look similar, right? Yeah, it, it has a similar taste, but that sweet potato is superior. You know? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, how how, so how are you? What's going on with you? Not good. Just you know, good eating on Thanksgiving, and now you know, chilling. Went to the went to the gym in the cold this morning just to you know make myself feel a little bit better. Yeah. Work some of this off and then get back to them leftovers today again. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I say I say I'm detoxing, but yeah, it's too much good stuff left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no way. Now, yeah, you know that. And sometimes some of those Thanksgiving, you know, be lasting. People eating that for like a good whole week. You know? Yeah, you know what? My my mama, she the type of person that she'll freeze stuff, like freeze <laughs> some greens. Like I don't I don't know if that's normal, but she does it. <laughs> hey, why not? Why not? Don't let it go to waste. Shoot. Yeah. Um, but other than that, you, you got uh, any Black Friday plans? Uh, so I actually, so I don't really participate in Black Friday. I'm like, so I won't say I'm against it, but it's just kind of like, I just don't have time. But my cousin actually convinced me after dinner, we actually all went to Walmart. And I... <laughs> Cause she was like, she lives like really close to one. She's like, just come. Only going to be here for an hour. And I'm like, okay, okay. We really were only there for like an hour. It was, we went to the Walmart that was, I don't know. I guess it's the suburban Walmart, you know, mm. interpret that how you will. And it was, <laughs> it was kind of organized. Like they had like, you could, they had like people that were holding like balloons uh, that was like, you can check out here. So like, we didn't even have to be in like a whole long line. Like we, when we were done, we just went to like a random aisle and the guy checked us out on like these um, kind of portable checkout things. Mm -hmm. So it was like really organized. Like they had these 1000 count uh, sheets on sale for like 20 bucks. So it was kind of like, those were some good deals. And we got like four, we got a Roku, um, I got me a little magic bullet for 19 bucks. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
I didn't want to, but I'm not mad that I did. Anyway, I mean, it's good that they started because they started the deals the day before, right? The mm-hmm. evening before. Mm-hmm. So it's good. So you need to get that early, the early mm-hmm. buzz and, and before the chaos, the Friday hits, which I've only been a couple. No, I, I haven't been to like actually leave my house, go to a store on Black Friday in a, in a few years. But I remember the one time I did, I went to a Walmart. It was just insane in there, man. I mean, it was just people running around with TVs. All the TVs was like the big thing. Yeah. All in their carts, man, just running up and down the miles. TVs, trying to get the tickets for the TVs. I'm like, bro. <laughs> One thing I will say is that while we were waiting in line, uh, we overheard one of the Walmart employees say that the the Walmart in the black area in my hometown, there was a stabbing. Oh my goodness! It's like, come on, people! God, it's too much. It's not even worth it. And you know, one of the things too about TVs is that, like, um, uh, I think my father in law told me this, and it wanted to be true. The best time, the best discount on TVs is like around the Super Bowl. Mm. Um, uh, and that's when actually me, uh, Chris and I got our, t- our TV a couple years ago, um, because it's when they're getting rid of the the previous year's models. Mm-hmm. And so they really dropped the price on like the TVs around the Super Bowl time. So if you're trying to get the better deals, and those those deals are always better than Black Friday deals, but people really don't know that. They just rush into Black Friday and get them. Um, so keep that in mind if y'all looking to get a TV and you know maybe didn't get one that you wanted during Black Friday or whatever, pay attention around Super Bowl time. Those TV deals are usually really, really good. See, that's, that's some good tea right there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, trying to help y'all out a little bit. <laughs> I don't know if we'll be watching the Super Bowl. <laughs> Maybe it depends on who playing. We'll see. <laughs> uh, speaking of tea, today's episode is mm-hmm. our our tea episode with a guest. We'll be sipping some tea um, yes. with a special guest. Mm-hmm. Yes, this today's guest, and uh, she'll introduce herself in a moment, but she's a friend of ours. We met her and, and was a homie of ours at Purdue and has, you know, graduated her PhD and has done, moved on to do a lot of great things in, in the STEM field. And, you know, with her, it was always funny because she was definitely a, the strong advocate for STEM. And, you know, a lot of her friends were in the social science and liberal arts. So always having tons of good debates and laughs yes. just surrounding that. And controversy. Debate, honey. <laughs> so she definitely holds the STEM field down. Uh, but, you know, we, we need it. We appreciate her because she, she provides us with a lot of knowledge and things that we just are not familiar with, as you'll see in this episode, especially um, some of her expertise dealing with cancer and cancer mm-hmm. research. I learned a lot and I'm sure you all will, too. But without further ado, ready to get into this episode, Daph? Yep, let's get started. All right, we'll catch up with y'all later. All right, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Black and Highly Dangerous podcast. Today is our current events episode number four, Sipping Tea with BHD. And today we have a very special guest, a friend of ours and friend of the podcast, Dr. Shayna Hardy. Welcome, Shayna. How are you doing today? Hi. Hi. Hello. How are you, Thoreau? How are you, Daphne? <laughs> I am fabulous and so happy to be talking with you. Oh my goodness. I know this is going to be good. You're so entertaining. (laughs) I'm good. You know, all all the listeners, please bear with me. You know, it is post Thanksgiving. So some of us may still be recovering from the itis. (laughs) Oh yeah, for real. Uh, but now we're glad to have Shayna on today to come chat with us, you know, about current events and, of course, her expertise area, which we'll get into a little bit. Before we even get into that, Shayna, tell the listeners who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, sure. So, um, Shana Hardy, as you introduced me, um, I hail from Montgomery, Alabama, where I attended Tuskegee University for undergrad majoring in biology. Um, I like Tuskegee so much, I decided to stay a little bit longer, get my master's. Um, when I got introduced to cancer biology there, so I got my master's in um, cancer biology. Um, and then I moved forward to to go to Purdue, um, Purdue University, where I would get my PhD in um, medicinal chemistry and molecular pharmacology, more on that molecular pharmacology side. So currently, um, after that, I did a postdoc where I went to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, um, and my research focused in on genome editing and um, genome editing technologies. Um, and now I currently work at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration as a pharmacology toxicology reviewer in the Office of um, Tissues and Advanced Therapies. And basically in that position, I um, actually evaluate preclinical studies um, for uh, different companies that want to move their drugs into first in human trials in the U.S. Do you mind if I um, <laughs> do you mind if I give my disclaimer now? Because I keep oh yeah yeah it. yeah okay um so okay like let me pull it up because I spent some time writing it out <laughs> um okay so the views expressed in this conversation are not to be interpreted as the views of FDA and must not be taken to provide official policy or guidance on behalf of FDA. Shana, that sounds really interesting. You know, I'm always interested in your work. Um, I guess, can you talk a little bit more about like, you know, the implications of your work? Why it's really important that we, that you do what you do? Okay. So, yeah. So, um, basically, um, everyone is familiar with the mission of FDA, which is to basically uh, protect public health. Um, and so uh, my work at FDA is um, really just to be that front line, um, to be that front line uh, uh, kind of person to assess these different drugs that are being made and going out into the market. Because there was a time where, you know, we did not have um, FDA in the capacity that it is today. And basically what you would have is people, you know, on the corner selling snake oil to different people saying, oh, this is going to help get rid of pain that you feel in your joints or that same oil they might say would be, you know, help you lose fat or something. So basically people would be selling these like any sort of solution and saying that this has some sort of therapeutic effect. And um, what would happen is that sometimes these solutions would have dangerous toxic chemicals in them and um, and people would be at risk. So uh, the government or um, the federal government was asked by the people, the public, um, that you step in and they kind of protect them from these um, scammers and these people who are putting out sort of these dangerous um, agents. 
And um, and that's when you had the formation of the FDA and um, and you had the formation of these different amendments that were called to help sort of protect and to regulate these products that's being sold. And so um, in my capacity, um, it, it's even further because FDA is so many different things. It, it's obviously, you know, um, the regulation of products um, as well as, you know, as doing research on safety of different agents that we find in products that we use every day. Um, We work hand in hand with EPA, our Environmental Protection Agency. We work hand in hand with USDA, United States um, Department of Agriculture. And um, together we regulate anything that consumers would um, come in contact with and ingest essentially. Um, And so um, the work that the FDA is doing is, is very important for the health of everyone. In regards of my own work, um, I, I am a cancer biologist by training, and um, that is part of the reason why I did get hired on into FDA because I work in advanced therapies. And so the, the type of therapies that we regulate are so um, advanced and unique. Um, they're not your typical like Tylenol or, you know, Advil or anything like that. So basically like uh, they're bringing in my expertise in terms of cancer research um, um, where um, they're sort of developing these biological agents to treat, um, you know, diseases that are currently challenging um, in the community. And so my specific research and um um, graduate school and part of my postdoc was in the field of cancer metastasis. And so we, we're all familiar with what cancer is. Um, pretty sure a lot, everyone, um, a lot of your listeners had someone in their family who, um, you know, experienced cancer in some form, whether they got treated and cured or they, you know, um, you know, died from cancer. Um, this is this is a disease that many of us are familiar with and, and sort of understanding is intrinsic. But I do want to kind of talk about exactly what it is and, um, you know, um, and why is it important that we, um, you know, continue to support research in cancer. Um, so for number one, like, you know, cancer, is a, is a disease that has to do with your body cells. And basically your body is made up of billions of cells. So you have brain cells, you have liver cells, you have lung cells, all these things. You're, you're just a bunch of cells that are together to make or as an organism. And basically your cells normally grow and divide. Um, and when they die, they're usually replaced by new cells. Um, and so each cell in your body sort of has a life, a, a lifetime. And um, so like, whereas your brain cells, they live, like the brain cells that you initially have are the brain cells that you die with. So your brain cells live for however long it is that you live. But then you have, and there's some research that kind of shows that we do get new brain cells, but that's developing, so like just take this up with a grain of salt here. <laughs> this is all for simplistic um, explanations. So the brain cells are kind of infinite, you know, it's for your lifetime. Then you have other cells like your skin cells that like literally live for like two or three days, you know, or four days. And so, um, so you have cells that live for different ages in your body. Um, but sometimes something goes wrong with those cells and they don't die. 
And that is when you start to um, potentially have a cancer cell. So what happens, what goes wrong in a cell is multifaceted. Like um, there's a million things. I'm pretty sure you've gotten all sorts of like, um, like uh, uh, newspaper articles or things you've seen on the internet that says like peanut oil causes cancer, cell phone, like cell phone, radiation from cell phone causes cancer. All these things cause cancer, but that's because it's all true. All these things cause cancer. Anything you can do can cause cancer. But basically what goes on in these cells that make them go wrong is usually um, called uh, something happens called a genetic mutation. And your genes are basically the blueprint of your cells. They pretty much tell your cell everything to do. Your genes tell you how to breathe. It tells you how to think. Um, it tells, you know, your cells, you know, how much nutrients to take in or how much to leave out. And when you get genetic mutations, this can interfere with your blueprint and your house can start falling down. Your cell can go, you know, awry. And so um, these genetic mutations could be caused by just simple, normal replication error. So like as your cells are dividing, you have these these proteins, these enzymes that come in and they replicate your DNA so that you have two DNA in your cell and your cell can split off into two in the DNA. So now you have new DNA in a new cell. Right. But what happens sometimes is as your DNA is being replicated, you might acquire an error. And um, and that error could a lot of times happens in places where um, it wouldn't matter. So, you know, you have genes, but you have areas in your DNA that aren't genes. These are non-coding regions. And you might get an error there and it doesn't change anything. Um, you might get an error in a gene and it doesn't change anything. Um, and so so you are as you're sitting here right now on this podcast, we're talking, you could be. Um, you could be um, getting or receiving an error in your replication as your cells are dividing right now. So you're getting errors all the time. Um, however, they just don't cause issues. But there are times where your replication may result in a more serious error. And this error could cause the cell to divide uncontrollably. Um, and, and it can happen by chance. And this is kind of sort of where you see these cases where these people have these perfectly, you know, normal lifestyles. They, you know, eat right. They they exercise and, you know, they don't smoke and they don't do anything, you know, that would make them more prone to cancer. But they just simply got in, you know, mutation somewhere important just from normal replication. And um, and now um, they have a cell that could cause cancer. Um, then you have these other things called environmental factors. And these are the things that people tend to try to control. Since you can't control your normal replication error, you, you try to control the environmental factors. And that can be anything from like the sun rays, the UV rays to eating right, exercising, um, you know, reducing the time spent on your cell phone with it to your ear, you know, different things like that. These are all considered environmental. And there are lots of studies that show like what we eat, things that we do, things that we expose ourselves to, you know, smoking, all these things can cause genetic mutations or increase the number of errors that we receive in our DNA that could potentially result in a cancer cell. And so um, in that case, now you have a cancer cell. It's dividing 
uncontrollably, it forms a tumor or a lump. And that's when um, you it may it may cause a problem depending on where it is. It may not. But if a doctor diagnoses you, they see the lump um, and they'll say, "Okay, we need to determine if this is benign or malignant or if this is cancerous. And um, based off if it's cancerous, um, it determines the treatment or if it's benign, determines the treatment. And so they can rather cut it out um, and give you like some sort of um, treatment therapy or or they can or if it's cancerous. Now you would you would move into more aggressive therapy. So I know one of the questions might be, so why is cancer cancerous? And um, and that's just because in the medical world, they associate cancer with being a malignant um, tumor. And by malignant means that this particular tumor has gained the ability to migrate from the primary site in which it started to another site. And that is um, sort of um, uh, what my research focused on is what attributes do these cancer cells or these tumors, what attributes do they pick up so that they now have the ability to migrate from the primary site to another site? Mm. Very interesting. I got a lot of questions and I'm not sure if we have the time to answer all these, but I do want to ask a couple. One, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the point on, uh, not glad you mentioned, but this is something that I recently just experienced mm-hmm. uh, from my works uh, at my job. Um, because when you said like, you know, people can do everything right, live the proper lifestyle and then still be diagnosed with cancer. And, and a recent colleague of mine, uh, rest in peace, passed away three days ago mm-hmm. after being diagnosed with cancer a year ago, um, mm-hmm. lung cancer in particular. And he was like, he was, he was 51 and never drank, never smoked, was a vegetarian, did triathlons, hiked all the time, like super healthy for his entire life and still was diagnosed with his advanced stage cancer last year and wound up passing away um, a, a couple of days ago. And so again, stuff like that, I mean, to me, it was like, what? You know, kind of, you know, you hear about all oh, people getting cancer, but it was rare for me to hear about somebody who was just like living this almost perfectly healthy lifestyle in every way and then still being diagnosed with it and still, you know, dying from it. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the genetic aspects, too, because sometimes you might not be able to help, but you can still do all you try to environmentally and you still may not be able to. Right. You know, right. You can still get it. And that and that is very interesting because, you know, it. Like it happens to everybody. Cancer knows no race. It knows no gender. It knows no lifestyle. It can happen to anyone. It is literally your body has just gone into malfunction mode. And, and mm-hmm. it is only because of its own work that it has to put through. Like some, it just can happen that you get that error just in some random place. That is important for controlling your cells growth. And now you have a cancer cell. So I am sorry to hear that, but yes, it's, Definitely non-discriminatory. But so now kind of going along those lines, yeah, everyone gets cancer. Now, I guess I have a two-part question. Uh, One being, and this is one I just kind of always curious about and not being familiar with the field. Are there some cancers that are like just more dangerous and severe than others or are all the kind of the same? Or some, if you get a particular type of cancer, is it not that serious and it's easy to fix? Where are we at with that kind of stuff? 
Okay, so that is a question that is like so multi-layered that I'm going to try to attack it the best way I can. So basically, um, what makes a cancer dangerous, in my opinion, is how easy is it to diagnose first? So number one, can we catch it early? One of the reasons why pancreatic cancer is one of the deadliest cancers is because people don't know they have it. And by the time you find out, it's too late. And so, but one of the reasons why prostate and breast cancer are one, are two of the most treatable cancer is because the diagnostic, the diagnosis that's um, current for those types of cancers are so good that you could pretty much like a doctor, you can pee in a cup, a doctor will know, okay, they'll check your PSA levels and they'll know something is abnormal with your prostate. And so um, because it's so easily diagnosed, those cancers are more easy, easily treated because you catch them in like stage one, stage two. But pancreatic mm-hmm. cancer, a lot of people get diagnosed at three and four. And that means like it's going to be a lot more tricky. The cancer has already metastasized. So now that's a more dangerous cancer, as you can see. Mm-hmm. So basically dangerous cancers are just later stage cancers, um, cancers that have acquired the ability to evade your immune system. Because you, when you're when you're a cancer cell, you're, you're quite smart, actually compared to your other cells. And this has always been the fun, the very cool thing about cancer biology and why I went into it. A cancer cell, you know, gets a mutation, right? So you're weird. You're like the weird cell. Okay, cool. So you're there and you're like, okay, I want more of me here, but I got to be careful because I know the immune cells, which are like the police, they're looking for me. I'm different. So, you know, you kind of play it cool. You kind of chill. You're, you're, you're signaling like normal. And then you divide. And then you divide again and you continue to divide. And then as a group, now you're a gang and you start to assemble things to protect yourself. You know, you 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 activate certain pathways that would help you uh, surveillance yourself or to hide yourselves from the police, which would be your immune cells. So now you you are um, evading the immune system. You're you're bringing in resources by creating blood vessels to the tumor to create, to promote your growth. And now you're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when you get to a certain size, you're kind of like, well, I want to continue to, you know, invade other parts of the body. So you start to acquire these characteristics that give you the ability to, to go to other parts of the body. And um, what I mean by that is this process called this epithelial to mesenchymal transition is also called EMT. And this is when a cancer cell gains the ability to move to another part of the body. And what happens is that epithelial means that you are a cobble-shaped cell. Like, so when you think of a cell, you probably think of a circle, you know, um, it's attached to a membrane, that type of thing. So when your cell is um, mutating and it's gaining abilities to move, first of all, it can't move through your bloodstream as is. It has to change. It has to morph. It has to be able to, you know, break through basement membranes. It has to be able to slither through your circulatory system. It has to be able to withstand a lot of different things just to get to a new site. So it, it changes. And when it as it changes and evolves, it gains these abilities. It gets into your bloodstream. And so now you your breast cancer that was localized in your breast has now it has now moved to towards your lung. 
and it's gotten to your lung and it's growing a whole new tumor there. And what makes this sort of cancer the most dangerous is that the doctor has no idea how many places your cancer cell has went. It doesn't know where it's gone. It doesn't know where it is. It could be cancer cells in your liver, in your lung, anywhere in your brain. It could be anywhere. And But all he knows is that, or she, all he or she knows is that that cancer cell has gained the ability to move from that site. And that is when your treatment goes from being like a, we're going in, we're going to cut out her tumor to, we have to put this person on a full like chemo radiation therapy mixed with all sorts of other therapies um, so that we can make sure that we attack all of the cells that are abnormally dividing in their body. And that, and it makes it very hard to treat. Mm. Yeah. I was, that makes sense. Oh yeah, it does. And I was about to say the way you described it, like I'm like, okay, t- Shane could be a teacher because you, you really <laughs> broke down to breaking the it elementary down. level. Yes. And even helping me because you know, I know y'all watch, I, but I'm pretty sure y'all watch right, uh Real Housewives of Atlanta. Yeah. Amy and Greg. Yes. Um, and the last episode, I don't know if it's the last episode, but maybe one of the It was the last episode. Where he was talking about like, okay, the cancer is gone, but it's still like in his bloodstream and they recommend the chemo, but he doesn't want to do it. Well, no, no, so no. So just like it by you. Were- yeah, it wasn't in his bloodstream. So what he was saying was the cancer was localized enough that they removed it, but they don't know for sure if like they can't, like you said, they can't tell if it's there or not. So they're not saying that it's there or is that is in his bloodstream. Mm. But it's just that they don't know if it's there or not, because maybe some of the characteristics of the tumor that they removed had some cells that might have undergone like this EMT process that I'm talking about. So they're like, you know, we would like to give you another like we want to we want to make sure we kill all those cells. And, um, and and Greg was like, well, if I'm if I don't have the cancer, like basically he's in remission. He he doesn't want to go through that um, chemotherapy because you know chemotherapy kills all cells, like <laughs> kills all dividing cells. That's why like chemotherapy is is one of the hardest types of therapies I think anybody will go through because basically like the way it works is that it kills any cell that is dividing. So. Um, so that's why your hair doesn't grow back. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So like, and you, you vomit a lot because some of your like shortest lifetime cells are your hair follicles and, um, different cells in your gastrointestines. So like, um, because those cells are always dividing very rapidly, like that chemo attacks those cells really quickly. And so your hair starts to fall out. You're vomiting all the time. You feel really weak, all these different things. And so nobody wants to go through that if they, if they don't actively have a cancer that the doctor can see there. And what I thought was interesting about what he said was that he was, he was considering alternative therapies. Like he wanted to know if there was an alternative therapy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like that is, that is always a conversation with me and a couple of my friends in um, the humanities. <laughs> <laughs> alternative medicines and different things like that. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, I, I definitely do not knock, um, the power of the, the mental willpower behind beating cancer. Um, rather you get that through faith or, or any other thing that you think might help. 
Um, but a lot of people kind of say, oh, you, you've been getting these articles that come out like, oh, they they beat cancer just from becoming vegan. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I, you know, it's not the vegan thing. It's the lower caloric intake. And that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, I'm always kind of, you know, questioning, you know, like, you know, the public's interpretation of what cancer is and and viewing it like it's a, um, it's not an infectious disease. It's not Ebola virus. It's not like, you know, you got the chicken pox or you got some bacterial infection. This is your own body that is just went awry. Like it's not some outside agent. So there's no like, oh, I eat the right things and it kills it. No, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> so in, is you know, thinking about Greg and, you know, this very public um, journey with cancer, um, you know, he's black. I was, it made me wonder about like uh, despair, health disparities related to cancer um, for like black people versus people of other racial backgrounds. Like, are there disparities and, you know, the types of cancers you might see uh, among the black population versus other populations? So, um, yeah, there are some health disparities that are associated with cancer. And um, although this isn't my research, this is um, definitely um, something they're doing more in the public health field um, is sort of, you know, uncovering why those health disparities occur. But from what I've um, seen at different conferences and different things like that is that, um, you know, there are some predisposition to death, um, death um, succumbing to death from cancer in these sort of, um, you know, minority communities. But, um, I think more and more they're showing ties to the social economics of that versus the actual, um, you know, ethnicities or races. And so, um, basically like, um, um, for example, um, many people in like the black and Latino community, um, they have less access to health care. So they get later diagnosis. So like they basically don't go to the doctor until like, you know, they are feeling pretty low. They can't go to work and different things like that. And so by the time they get to the doctor, um, you know, the disease has manifest in a way where um, they're getting a later um, diagnosis, which, as I stated before, the later the diagnosis, the more dangerous the cancer becomes. And so that that's one uh, factor. Another factor is obviously the mistrust that these communities have with the with the doctors and their advice. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, do not necessarily every time they go to the doctor, the doctor is there to give them bad news, whether your blood pressure is too high, you have diabetes, um, try to put them on these different types of medications. And, um, and so they, you know, they just don't want to go to the doctor. And, and again, these all contribute to a later diagnosis. So anything that contributes to later diagnosis is going to increase your chance of dying um, from cancer. Um, in terms of anything biological, um, we're starting to see that there are things that can make you genetically predisposed predisposed to getting cancer. Um, and this is basically, I know you probably heard this term precision medicine. Um, this is sort of the 
the one of the um, one of the main areas of precision medicine is being able to, you know, if you go in and they diagnose you with cancer, they can take a biopsy of your tumor or um, a biopsy of your tissues. They can actually sequence the DNA in those cells and they can see what genetic mutations you have. So they can determine what probably caused your cancer and they can also determine which therapy you would respond to better. That's precision medicine. And that it would be like the future of cancer, um, cancer treatments, cancer therapies. Um, and so um, I think the more we, um, once we start moving towards that area of like diagnosing the particular patient um, with the type of cancer they have, how they got it and what, therapies they will respond to best, I think we'll start getting information about different groups, different populations, if we see any trends. But right now, I can't say that there's, like, most of it is like correlative studies regarding um, minorities and um, cancer. It's being pointed more towards that public health, that environmental component that we have more control of in terms of the biological component. Those things are still being worked out. And, you know, I don't think anyone is really trying to focus on the difference in terms of like genetics, like biology with these different social groups, because obviously the history of eugenics, we don't want people to say like, oh, this group is better because they don't have certain things um, or they have certain mutations. Um, and I think like people's kind of stray away from like that race-based genomics. Uh, but we do have some people that do research in there. There's a professor at Howard that does that, and he is actually engaged with Francis Collins at NIH um, to kind of have more conversations because what we're learning is that different populations exhibit different mutations that make them resistant to certain things. Like, for example, an African-American population, we're uh, more likely to have sickle cell anemia or um, even this genetic mutation in glucose 6-phosphate, and it's called GP, GP6 uh, deficiency. And basically, these two um, mutations are typically found in the African-American community. But what they found is that this mutate these mutations evolve, particularly the G um, GP six uh, G six P deficiency, um, actually derived from a population in Africa, um, and in this, and it was from generations of malaria infection. So through generations of malaria infection these populations develop this mutation to protect themselves from malaria. So people who have sickle cell or people who have this deficiency in the glucose, 6-phosphate, um, these people are actually more resistant to malaria infection, which is I thought was completely interesting. I was like, wow, this is crazy. So here you see like, this like genetic shift um, in populations that are exposed to specific diseases. And with sort of this um, 
this kind of globalization that's happened, what you're having is like the integration of all these different like genetic mutations and different things that could potentially protect us to be basically building even stronger human race. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Mm, no, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we get to this, this next point really quickly, mm-hmm. I have a quick question about, and I'm not sure if you can answer about the FDA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the approval of certain things. So why, just as a general consumer, yeah, right? Why does the FDA in, like um, approve of things like dietary supplements and things like that? I always uh, had that question, yeah. like with vitamins or like fish oils and all this other kind of stuff. Cause I'm always trying to figure out which ones are good, which ones are not, all of yeah. them are not FDA approved. And just as a consumer, I'm like, I would like to know these things. So I know I'm not wasting my money or things are being effective. Yeah. FDA does not regulate vitamins. And so um, we, we don't regulate supplements and vitamins. Um, that's all I can say about that. Uh, I think okay. what could <laughs> I think what could happen is if the public wanted the FDA to regulate that. As a consumer myself, I find it so amazing. Like before I even went to the FDA, that FDA created the Center of Tobacco Products, and I was like, "Wow! Mm-hmm. Like we created the Center of Tobacco Products. This is a new center." I'm like, "Why would they do that? We've been having cigarettes for all this time. Like, but because of the outcry from the public." And they said, you have to do something about this. People are not, they're not, these drug or these tobacco companies are not telling us the risk of smoking their products. Then FDA steps in and they say, okay, you know, the people want this or not really FDA, Congress, people go to Congress. Congress says, okay, we got to do something about this. Whose job is it going to be to do this? So, hey, let's get the FDA involved in this. FDA, we want you Mm -hmm. to now regulate tobacco products. So if the people go to Congress and they say, hey, we want you to regulate supplements and vitamins, then Congress would say, FDA, we want you to do that. But the thing is, why do you want supplements to be regulated by FDA is the question. (laughs) I mean, I just want to know, like, what's working, what's not, you know. Absolutely. Because as a consumer who knows nothing about science and nutrition, you know, it's hard for me to be like so many products on there and everybody's boasting their products is the best. And so I just never really know, like... Yeah. No. Right. Yeah. I understand. And like, (laughs) I have the same questions. I'm like, why don't we regulate that? Like, that doesn't make any sense because, you know, um, they can say anything on their bottles. Actually, they can say things like we promote hair growth, like biotin does it all the time. Like, oh, we promote hair growth, but they don't do any studies to show that. So it's like, uh, you know, you're taking it off chance. But at the end of the day, like, no, we don't regulate those things. And I don't even know how much of that conversation you can use. But <laughs> I'll put my disclaimer. I'll say my disclaimer at the end. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Um, uh, so getting into like one of, you know, I guess finishing up, you yeah. know, what some of your areas of expertise and you mentioned um eugenics right uh mm-hmm. which is interesting because even when you talked about like the difference between alternative medicine and stuff like that yeah. uh but with eugenics you know for our listeners the definition of that is the science of improving a human population by controlled breeding to increase the occurrence of desirable heritable 
uh, characteristics. So things like, you know, we see what the Nazis were doing to the Jews and stuff like that and trying to find a superior race. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, all these kind of, you know, racist even we talk about things like the uh, Tuskegee experiment and, and, mm-hmm. and syphilis studies and things along those lines. I think a big part of it, right, too, is just about who is doing the studying, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and the purpose of why they're doing it, right? Yeah. So yeah, from eugenics perspective, I feel like in our society, in our country, yeah, if it's primarily white folks trying to study black folks and our genes, um, yeah, there's going to be this assumption and fear that they're trying to do it for a reason to say one race is better than the other or looking from a deficiency perspective. But even how you just described it before with the sickle cell um with mm-hmm. sickle cell disease, right? And how the mutation was for, uh, to strengthen, right? Mm-hmm. People who are in Africa doing deal with malaria, right? So it's not about eugenics. It's really trying to uncover what the reasons are mm-hmm. and, you know, find, find reasons as far as how we can better or understand what's going on in our bodies, not trying to say that one is worse than the other. And so that leads me to the question, right? About just you yourself being a black person in STEM, not only a black mm-hmm. person, but a black female in STEM. So what are your thoughts about, uh, these particular racial disparities in the science careers. And we've seen a push for a lot of getting young black kids involved in things like that, like computer science and all, all these other things. Mm-hmm. So what is your, what is your take in that being a black female in STEM and how it can benefit the field overall? Yeah, I like, I love to see young black people be enthusiastic about science and um, in coming into biomedical research, particularly the research part. I think what we've been seeing, though, is a a huge increase of Black people in the medical field, um, particularly in medicine. Although I know there's still some disparities in those fields, um, there has been this push, but I think it has a lot to do with what's portrayed in media. So in media, you, you know, a lot of people look to the Cosby's or different shows like that, or they obviously see like these doctors live these kind of fabulous like lifestyles. And, and that is sort of the front face of what would be like biology, right? When you think of biology, someone major in biology, they're thinking, oh, I want to become a doctor. And I hear this all the time when I get mentees, they, um, they say they want to be a doctor, a pharmacist or a dentist. And, um, and, you know, so I do see this push of black kids in STEM, but they still choose these more kind of professional careers. Um, and the research component is still very new to them. Um, and so, um, what I, what I tend to do is, you know, I start, I I always start my mentees with a simple question of, um, do you want to know how something works or do you want to know why something works like it does? And um, if you just want to know how something works um, or you want to know, like, okay, how do you, you know, how does a person get cancer? Okay, this would be my treatment. Then, yes, go the medical route. Right. But then if you want to know why something is the way it is, then you should think about going the research route. And um, and, you know, if you want to know why something is the way it is and you want to, you know, sort of develop new ways of addressing these, you know, disease in general, then that's more of the research component. And then I think these um, minority students now have a better um, idea of what what it like what is out there to sort of um address any type of um, curiosity they have about, you know, medicine and and biomedical research. Um, And when they do come into these fields, they don't see people that look like them. So it is 
even more difficult. Graduate school is already isolating. Um, and then you come into these fields and you don't really see um, black people in these fields. You go to conferences, you don't really see a lot of black people there. But I think um, there has been this push for minorities in STEMs and, um, and, and there's been a lot of support, um, particularly for one for me is um, the um, AACR, which is the Association of American Cancer Research, um, they're very supportive of minorities and women. Instead, they, you know, give out different, um, you know, uh, fellowships to come to their um, conferences and different things like that, um, engaging you, allowing, giving you opportunities to network with other minorities. And, um, and I think those have all been very supportive of this increase of minorities in STEM. Now, in terms of minorities studying science as it relates to Black folk or their folk is a, is something that I, I find very interesting. A lot of, um, I notice a lot of scientists from HBCUs typically focus on minority um, um, minority serving issues. Um, and and that's cool, you know, and um, but a lot of times they might not have the full resource capacity as a PWI research institution. Um, and so, you know, as a black female scientist, I definitely felt this pressure that I should go the traditional route and become a professor, run a lab at like a, a PWI. I felt like I should do that. I, I came from the HBCU and I love HBCUs, but one thing that I could say about my Tuskegee experience was that a black scientist wasn't foreign to me. I mean, the day one coming onto campus, you learn about George Washington Carver, you walk his lab in the museum, you go to his lab. And so it was no longer foreign to me that there were black scientists and engineers. Um, but when I got to Purdue, it was like, I could not find a single black principal investigator. I could not find a single black scientist on that campus that was operating to operating their own lab. Like I seen black PhDs, like they had PhDs in a STEM field, but they were like maybe working in a diversity office or running a research program or something like that. But no one was like, not, not a single black person was running a lab. And then I end up meeting um, one of my friends, still my friends, one of my mentors, um, Dr. Yava Jones Hall and um, Daphne, you know her. She she is a professor in the vet school, um, and she was she was someone that was actually running a lab and writing papers and everything. But at, by that time, I had already chosen a PI. But if I met her sooner, I probably would have tried to work in her lab because this is such a rare thing to find. So I did feel like this, like oh, I need to I need to become this because I know how important it is to see this, um, but. The academic, like the academy wasn't for me per se. I, 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 um, later on, I felt this, um, strong need to, to want to be, um, more on the side of like the impact. And I, I found myself not being really satisfied with just the basic science, but I wanted to see the work translated and, and I wanted to see, um, I wanted to be a part of people you know, receiving therapies that would be life-changing. And I knew I couldn't do that at the bench 
in, you know, at like a Purdue or Auburn University or anything. So, um, so I did decide to get out of the academy. But even then, I'm out of the academy. I still try to make myself very present on academic campuses. Like next year, I'll be visiting the University of Michigan, um, kind of telling my story, um, different things like that. Letting letting minority scientists know that there are alternative careers where we're also missing at. Um, because even working at the FDA, even though I don't work at this capacity, there is a capacity where um, they need minority scientists to um, look at clinical trials specifically um, and to make sure that minorities are represented because I know that we just have a different perspective, you know, and um, we bring that perspective when we're there. Um, I can't imagine working on a team that wasn't diverse because all the perspectives are so um, valuable. And so I, I definitely try to encourage minorities to go into STEM. It's very rewarding and it pays really well. <laughs> mhm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, Shayna is the the STEM whisperer. She will have everybody <laughs> wanting to go into STEM fields been this way ever since I've I've known her. So yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, but you know <laughs> but although this person isn't STEM, she is trying to encourage us all to, you know, become our our true and most fabulous selves. Uh, so, you know, we're talking about the black girl excellence that you are a black woman excellence. We, we got to talk about Michelle Obama and becoming oh, yes. Michelle Obama. Oh, yes. <laughs> My favorite first lady ever. Yes. Have y'all gotten a book? Yes, I have it. Haven't started yeah. reading it yet. That's on my winter first thing to read on winter break list. Yeah, I started. Reading John just it. got it for me. It, what do you think? I saw, you know, of course, I like was reading the news where she kind of, you know, there was like excerpts from the book where they were talking about some deeply personal things. And I was like, OK, I got to get this book. And, and John ended up buying it for me. Oh, <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> I watched a couple of interviews, uh, mainly the ones her Oprah interviews mm. her and Oprah. Um, about the book and the content in it. Mm, I watched the 2020 special with Robin and it was phenomenal because they went to her house in Chicago and everything. And so I was like really excited. So I downloaded the book immediately, started listening to it because I like listen to all my books nowadays. But <laughs> it is really good to hear it in her voice. I will tell you this, but I will be buying a hard copy for the coffee table. <laughs> okay. Well, the the great thing about this, it is sold 1.4 million copies in the first week in the U.S. And it's mm-hmm. even That's like in, in like the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Holland, Spain, Denmark, and Finland. It's the number one adult nonfiction title in all mm. of those countries. Wow. So cool. she she is doing this. She's doing the thing. Yes. She is. She is. Yes. I wonder if, I, if, if our current first lady wrote a book like that, would it sell like that? She gonna, is the title going to be Becoming Michelle Obama? <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw some jokes uh, like that. Like, I saw some jokes like that that said she was going to write a book called Becoming Michelle Obama. I ain't going to pretend like that. Was well, she's an immigrant, so maybe she has a story to tell. You know, I don't know. Like... <laughs> I know, we already, like, like we already caught her plagiarizing once, so we wouldn't be surprised. 
<laughs> there was a story of her, of her trying to say Trump was up in the middle of the night worried about racial inequality and stuff like that, like yeah. Barack was. What I really like about Michelle's book is that it is so, like, it's so reflective and personal. And I just, I see so much of myself in her, just how she writes. Like she's legit representing, you know, the little black girls that are just really smart and, you know, who, you know, just try to do the right thing, do the right thing in life to try to get to where they want to go and do right by their parents. Like, I think she did a good job conveying how like, you know, how we are about, you know, black family and different things like that. And so, and then I love, love, love the love story between her and Barack. It's just so cute. I love it. (laughs) It was good. And I think one of the, at least from the interview, like I said, I haven't read the book yet, but you know, she alluded to that. This is in the book, um, which I think is important, right? Is that uh, when she, she kind of did everything right, was always a good student and knew she wanted to be a lawyer, yeah. went to law school, excelled in every dimension of, you know, trying to get to her career. And then, you know, when she got there, she wasn't satisfied mm-hmm. doing what she thought. And it wasn't until she got to that point where she actually took a step back in life and realized, like, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. I mean, I'm making great money and I did everything, you know, hit all the checks I was supposed to hit. And you get to this point and then she was like, you know, one of the things she encourages people to do is really figure out like who you are, you know, throughout your journey. So you don't get to that point of doing everything you had to do. And then you're trying to like change a career. Not that it's impossible to do, but it's kind of better to do it while you're discovering yourself. Right. And take a, take a moment to just say, you know what, you know, what do I really want to do for the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. Um, it is not always just about the money, right. Which she found pretty quickly. Cause she, like she said, she was making good money. was a great lawyer, but that's not what satisfied her passions overall. You know, yeah. and I think that's a real privilege of this generation to be able to, to follow passions. Um, because like in the book, you know, there definitely was a scene in the book where her mom, you know, sort of, you know, was critical of her decision to, to leave her high paying job because her mom is kind of like, you know, you're, you're making the money and that's what this is all about. You know, this is why you went to Princeton and went to Harvard Law and did these things because, you know, you need to be able to provide for your family. And, um, and so in, and when she talks about her interaction with her mom about that particular decision, it made me realize like how much privilege we must have to be able to follow passions at this point, you know, um, because back then I don't think they had that type of privilege. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, definitely a generational element to that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so yeah, that's important. Glad you point that out. Mm-hmm. Um, Anything else on Becoming? You know, I'm excited to read it. You know, I've been hearing all the reviews, so can't wait to get into it as soon as the semester over. That's one of the first things I'm doing. I'm just ready to dig into it. Yep, that's about it. Um, So another story <laughs> that is just like, I don't know. I, it's, I got so many, you know, feelings about this, but um, a story about, you know, this kind of everybody's been calling it the colonizer <laughs> missionary. <laughs> apparently you know and i know you guys can fill in the blanks too whatever i miss out on but this guy was i guess off the coast of india somewhere Mm -hmm. right in india sentinel Um, sentinel island a sentinel island and was that the island he was going to yes yes 
Okay. Um, and so for what I gathered from this story is that there's this island um, that this pretty much this white guy, was he in his 20s? I don't remember his age. Um, I think he was like 27. Yeah, I remember like 26, 27 when I remember seeing. Um, and pretty much wanted to go to this island, this particular island where there was a group of native folk there who had pretty much been untouched by, you know, current, um, you know, people of today's time, right? Uh, they just still living in the ways that they've always lived in. And um, but one of the things about this particular group is that they've known to be um, extremely violent towards outsiders. Um, and so I know wherever he was staying originally, you know, they have um, things where they say you can't visit. They, you know, they don't allow people to go to this particular island. But he wind up, you know, trying to use his privilege and get to this island. And which he did, he paid some fishermen uh, to ship him over, you know, sail him over there. And I think they only sailed him up to a certain point. And then mm-hmm. he like got into a little rowboat and then, you know, went the rest of the way. So they, even they was like, listen, we ain't this is as far as we going, bro. Um, and the rest is on you. And uh, he wind up going to this island and uh, wind up getting killed by these folks, um, bows and arrows. Uh, and I, the, the fishermen said that they saw him getting dragged by his neck um, or by a rope or whatever. And then they wind up burying him and all this crazy stuff. And right now I know the countries are trying to work to try to get his body back. Uh, but there was a lot of crazy, a lot of discussion about this, you know, this story overall, which I thought was just um, insane in a lot of ways, for sure. Yeah, I think it was crazy because that wasn't even his first attempt to go over there. He had oh, attempted to do it like two days earlier. I don't know what like stopped him. He wasn't as prepared. But one article I read uh, said that, like, you know, after the first attempt on November 14th, you know, he kind of regrouped and came back better prepared, you know, for Mm -hmm. that journey. I don't know what that meant, but. And they actually said that once they started shooting the arrows, that he actually continued like walking forward. Like, yeah. So I I don't know. (laughs) Was he? She's going to watch too many movies. Right? <laughs> like, bro, you're just not going to not going to just walk into their land and and just think they're going to be like, oh, you know, I think this is also I think I saw a story. This is like um, a group that I think there was like a helicopter flying above one time and they were actually shooting arrows at the helicopters and stuff mm-hmm. that were like trying to take pictures. Um, mm-hmm. So they don't play. And everybody knows that. And so I don't know what he thought he was about to do, putting himself in that dangerous situation. Well, he he wanted to turn them into Christians. Oh, that's what that's literally what we wanted to do. Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. No, that's what he called him the colonizer. Oh. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. Pur- that was his purpose. Oh, he was wilding. Yeah, that wow. was his purpose in life. Somebody said that they met him like three years ago and how he had like talked with such passion about, you know, spreading the gospel and how this had been planned out for years. Mm, that's wild. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know he was actually trying to get them to go over there to convert this isolated group to Christianity. Now that that yeah. that is why, okay, now it even makes sense. I thought it was like colonizer missionary mission. Uh, just as a joke, but no, he was literally trying to do that. Yeah, he has to have like a serious mental situation to go like, despite his own health and living, like to go into that scenario the way he did, like, yeah, no, (laughs) it's kind of. Yeah, I I, I don't even know. (laughs) 
you know, the the Bible does say spread the gospel, but I don't I don't think the Lord is trying to put you in any situations where you got to you know what I'm saying? Right. There's there's so many different ways nowadays you can spread the gospel, you know, yeah. with internet and blogs and so many other groups you can try to reach out to that are less dangerous. Whose language you actually speak. That you actually speak. Indian people don't even speak that language. They have their own language. So you, I don't mm. I don't know. I don't know what this guy was thinking, man. Uh, okay. Well, you know, hopefully this is a lesson learned for anybody else trying to colonize on their missionary <laughs> missions. <laughs> do it do it the safe way, people. There's a lot of safer ways than yeah. life on a line. Yeah. Any other big stories in the news lately? Um, I mean, you know, as far as, I, I mean, if you want to talk about what's been going on with those California wildfires, um, and the devastation there for a lot of the celebrities' homes I've seen being caught on fire mm-hmm. uh, while that happened uh, over this past month. Uh, one of the more interesting things that a lot of people had questions about, and I know I did, is that how Kanye and Kim hired uh, private firefighters to protect their fire uh, to protect their property. And one, I just didn't even know there was a such thing as private firefighters. I, <laughs> like, where do you even get them from? <laughs> I didn't um, either. I don't think they're. Um, I don't think they're private firefighters. I think they're the firefighters, but it's like in their own time, like when they're off, you can hire them for like a private something. So it's extra money for them. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so, so they're not police, pro- like getting extra like police protection when they're like off duty or something like that. Yeah, kind of like, that, that, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And usually, um, usually they have like. You're, you can get insurance and it goes through the insurance, but it's very expensive. It's like very expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a rich. One thing I will say about that is I actually have uh, friends um, that live in UC Davis. So it's like Northern California. And so although, although the wildfires didn't hit them, the, the smoke and stuff is so bad that like they, you know, some of the people have not been able to like go to school. Like they, even know, they've called school days out. So, you know, it's not just impacting the people who are actually literally their homes are in the fire, but it's impacting people all across California just because the, the smoke is everywhere. Mm-hmm. 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 So my, my former advisor from Purdue actually lives out there and I, you know, check, you know, I had to check on him. Like, is every, you know, are you, you guys okay? He was just like, just kind of stuck in a house. Cause you know, the smoke and stuff. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause that stuff can lead to other health issues. Um, Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. And your president was calling it instead of calling it Paradise California, he kept on calling it Pleasure California. Y'all heard about yeah. what? <laughs> and he did it multiple times. It's oh. called Paradise. He was calling it Pleasure. He is so inappropriate on Yo. so many levels. <laughs> this guy is nasty, man. <laughs> we know what you're thinking about, Trump. Oh, man. This, guy is, this guy is nasty. <laughs> Oh man. Um, uh, anything else, you know, uh, yeah, from, uh, current events, current events? Uh, no, no, I, I I think that's the, that's the, those are the big things. Okay. Um, one thing I want to talk about quickly is that this past week I was uh, away at a conference in Atlanta, uh, for the national conference for, um, ASC and, you know, I, I had the opportunity to go to TI's trap music museum. 
uh, for the first time. Oh. And, and, you know, for those of you who don't know, you know, T.I. created a museum to just really um, demonstrate and show uh, trap music and the beginning of it, create a museum for it. I think it's original to be like a pop-up thing and it mm-hmm. wound up staying staying um, and becoming a permanent fixture in the community. And even, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Two Chains. For some reason, I'm trying to call him by his old name, Titty Boy. <laughs> but <laughs> Two <so> Chains. <laughs> Uh, his his pink car, uh, trap car, whatever is actually in there too, yeah. um, along with a lot of other things uh, for sure. Um, but I think you know, just for me personally, going to the museum, I think it was a, it is a good you know attempt to really show people about what trap music is in its beginning and the history and. A lot of it's not even like, I, I feel like a lot of it's not even super, super history. A lot of it, I guess, T.I. takes the credit for starting it. So a lot of it just kind of begins with him. And then, you know, all the other people like Jeezy and, and, and all the more current off, uh, artists are out there. But I think um, for those of you who haven't been, I think one of the issues that I had with it was that, you know, they have a couple of sets. Um, and even T.I., this is what confused me because I even listened to him on his Breakfast Club interview. And he wanted to make sure because people were at calling it the calling it the trap house museum and all that stuff. He's like, no, it's the trap music museum. Like it's mm-hmm. a clear intent behind why we're doing this. But then when you get to the museum, there's a lot of the stuff that just um, kind of glorifies, I think, trap house. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as soon as you walk in like old apartment building and on the table. There's like Colt 45, um, you know, beer bottles and there's like weed and and jars and mason jars and there's a gun on the table and like all this kind of stuff that glorifies that stuff. And then you get into the next room and then there's like a kitchen and in the kitchen there's just scales with all these like bricks of cocaine. Right. And like you can fake like cook crack and all this stuff is interactive. And so while I'm there, you know, I'm looking at it, but then you just see all like the young kids and the young folk in there. Just like mm-hmm. playing with all this stuff, taking pictures with the with the cocaine uh, bricks and, mm-hmm. and and taking pictures of them pretending they're cooking up crack in the kitchen. And there's like a, a gun, a T.I.'s gun closet. And I'm like, mm, OK, I don't know, because, you know, you want to be educational and informative like a museum. But if you're trying to make the distinction between it being a, a trap house or a trap music museum, but those are two different things. And a lot of it is kind of glorifying that trap culture. Um, I'm sure which most of the music stems from, but I just didn't know how I felt about seeing like those images, you know what I'm saying? What the kids were leaving, leaving with. Um, Cause I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's cool, man. Like, yeah. Do you, think it, with fat, with fat. Do you think it would have been mm-hmm. better if um, there was like, if it was more like a tour and there was like a guide who kind of ta- like, yeah, I guess give you like the narrative for you know, as you go through the trap music museum, you think it would have been better? That would even be better. Yeah. I think that would even be better because it just, it would make it more informative. Like we're not just putting it here so you can play with it. And cause you know, it's, we live in a social media age. Yeah. And so the kids are going to, you know, taking pictures of what, you know, is going to, what they think is fun and what other people are going to see. And it's kind of like just glorifying that. Nobody was like taking pictures of them of like the, the words are talking about the history of trap music and like where it's coming from and the trajectory, all that kind of stuff. It was just like all the interactive material, which was just the guns mm. and, the, and the cocaine and, and the crack files. And yeah. I'm like, oh man, the fake money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think it's the wrong, it's the wrong thing to promote. And like you said, if it's about just like letting people know about this culture, I, I like Shana's idea. Like there's a way to do it without glorifying it. 
You know, and I'm going to tell you, like, I have, let me just start out by saying that I am a huge, huge, huge T.I. fan, and I am from the South. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm from the South where trap music began, um, you know, with the, with the whole I'm serious and everything. So I will, I do give credit to T.I. for starting trap music. Um, and that could be debatable, whatever. But, um, you know, just just understanding the culture and what it is and the type of music it is. Like, I'm, I was very excited to hear there was a trap music museum. And I was, I'm so ready to see it. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm so ready to see it. And um, I think that, like, I'm kind of disappointed that I don't know how he put together the pop up museum, because from the snaps that I've seen from like, you know, Terrell and a few other people, it just seems to be like he has like all of these like um, sort of artifacts from different artists, you know, and people who, you know, I guess come from the trap or whatever. And I was kind of like disappointed with that. Like, could you not have brought, I don't know if he did or not, but I just think he should bring in like some sort of museum curator person, like who's like, okay, how do we make this an impactful cultural experience? Like, you know, and we, we can get the history as well as get the cultural piece and that it be respected because I don't want it to, to come off like, you know, like, like kind of thing like oh like this is you know and to feed stereotypes because you know just from the pictures it just looked like you know just some like it's no context it felt like mm. for a lot of the stuff yeah and so that's the issue yeah even like one of the exhibits ti it was like ti's gun closet and this is when he got in trouble for the all these guns in his closet mm-hmm. and so it was like he got some clothes up there and he got all these like assault rifles and guns just sitting up in the closet and like his Grammy in the middle, right? And just not a lot of context. And it's like, what's the point of that? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, yo, not not to say that what you show about your life and demonstrate about your life, but you're also many more things than just, you know, having all these guns, right? And clothes, like yeah. you're also a family man, right? From mm-hmm. your show and and you have a bunch of kids who you care for deeply. Like, why don't we also see that, you know, glorified a little bit more too? Like to show people like, yo, I'm just not this gangster with a lot of guns, you know what I'm saying? And had this kind of lifestyle, which I got in trouble for, but let me also show like the other side of the trap, the trap lifestyle as well, which is like, yo, I'm a family man and I love my family yeah. and I do things for them. And maybe even put that in a narrative, like, I did these things or lived this life because I felt like I had no other way to get money for my family or protect my family, right? Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just there. <laughs> and yeah. people were like, oh, look at all these guns. Like, oh, bro. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, he needs some help with that. <laughs> just a little, little help, just a little bit, a little bit more guidance and direction, I think. Because it's just like, what my thing is like, okay, what are people leaving with when they come, come mm-hmm. see this, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's. I think what I'm excited about what this museum creates is that maybe sometimes, I don't know if this already exists, but I'm still waiting for this hip hop like museum, like this hip hop cultural museum, because hip hop is literally like they thought that it would only be this certain period, time period, and it has withstood the test of time, even better than some other genres. And so I'm, I'm waiting for that. And I felt like this was a step in that direction. So Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say, you know, one thing I'm excited about in terms of like pop culture and just like what's on the horizon. Uh, did y'all see the trailer for the live action Lion King movie? Yes, That's I did. 
So excited. And I don't like remakes, but this is going to be good. <laughs> Yeah. And the images look so beautiful. They look so beautiful. I'm excited. I'm, yeah, I'm very excited. What's the date? June 19th? I yeah, think. June 19th or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, I was excited when they talked about it and they talked about the cast, right? Is, mm-hmm. it, is, Beyonce, is Beyonce? Yeah, she's not. Yeah. She's the adult Nala. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Gambino mm-hmm. um, as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's playing Simba. Um so yeah, I'm excited, man. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be fun to watch it and see the, the live action, you know, you know, like the 3D type. But yeah, I like the one minute clip. I kind of wanted more, but I know it was the first trailer, so it's gonna give us a little taste, you know. <laughs> I love that James Earl Jones is back. Yes. I love yeah. that he was the, in the original, life. and now he's back. Yeah, that's so that cool. He is, is still alive and ready to do it. <laughs> His voice <laughs> sounded exactly the same. I was like, yes, Mufasa, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm excited. And I, and I see what Disney is doing. I think I watched a YouTube video on, like, Disney, like, whoever's the current, like, you know, president of Disney right now trying to do all these live action uh, versions of the classical uh, blockbuster movies that Disney had, like the Beauty and the Beast, the Cinderella, and now they're doing the Lion King. And to be honest, when they- They're doing Aladdin, action, Aladdin too. Yeah, 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 Aladdin, which I'm excited Will about. Will Smith is a genie. Really? Uh, yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I mean- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah um rest in peace robin williams is the only genie that i know yeah but um how they brought in wilson so that's cool yeah yeah i think he'll he'll do it justice but he can't try to be robin williams <laughs> so. yeah. oh, <laughs> he's gonna be he's gonna be well yeah yeah but yeah i'm excited yeah i'm excited about this lion king though and I feel like a lot of us, like our our generation, we're gonna be the ones like the main ones, you know, buying them tickets, ready to go. Yeah, <laughs> it ain't about the kids on this one. A lot of the kids, do they even know? You know, about yeah. Lion King? Real, real? Yeah. Do you? They? Oh, uh, they? They gonna know if they did? And I actually saw somebody put a meme. Uh, you know, Adam Sandler in that movie, like Happy Gilmore or something, where he like with all them little kids sitting sitting in a room. <laughs> I don't know, but they like, oh, that's gonna be me at the movies next year because yeah. like I got all the movies: Dumbo, Aladdin, Lion King. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think they, you know, trying to rebuild these audiences, like how to get that Disney magic going here. Well, yeah, well, yeah, with the new film and technology, it just brings it to life, and it's like we get to relive it all over again, but it's still different, you know, in a way we never saw it before. So it's gonna be fun. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I hope, and I hope they stick to the same. You know, hope there's not any like made. I'm sure they're not going to do it, but you know, same script. You know, no major changes to the script or nothing like that should be. Yeah, I don't think so. The the worst thing they can do is, is just try to make it logical or something. Because I think they did that with like uh, the Beauty and the Beast. They kind of added some some story there to kind of make up for the lack of story in the cartoon I didn't really like it so it's like yeah stick to the script please <laughs> don't add a takeaway we know they're gonna have the old songs hopefully you know I wonder if they're gonna put any new songs in there oh yeah maybe maybe not maybe but we know they're gonna have- Beyonce you know they gonna she got a song on the soundtrack I'm sure oh that's gonna be cool too <laughs> yeah and, and Gambino oh yeah it's gonna be a good mix it's gonna be a good mix mm-hmm. so we're excited 
We're excited. Yeah. Definitely going to have a, a BHD review after that comes out. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> 100%. Um, anything else politics-wise, um, I know we have on here talking about that economists are now predicting that, and you know, to me, this is not surprising and probably to most of America, but some people are probably still surprised by this, that Trump's economy is eventually going to head into a economic recession. Oh, no. Yeah, I think about this. Yeah, so from what I've read, um, the economy is going to slow down, started in 2019. Like, so many from the Federal Reserve to like, uh, like Goldman and Sachs and some of these major financial institutions, they've talked about how they are predicting the economy will slow down in 2019 uh, and that uh, there will likely be a recession in 2020. So prepare yourselves. <laughs> yeah, that's important. That's important because um, even when I speak to my students and stuff like that, a lot of times we don't anticipate these kind of things or think of that it's going to affect you or how can it affect you, um, especially college students, right? They just think, oh, I'm going to get my degree and get out. But these policies and this recession is going to affect you if you're not paying close attention. You need to have a couple of plans, A, B, and C, Maybe even the D. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as you know, you're going out. You think you want to get a particular job. You know, will you be able to get that job in a recession? Um, even folks like who are already working, will your job be secure if a recession hits? Mm-hmm. You know, is it dependent on any kind of government funding or anything mm-hmm. like that? Because uh, you just don't want to get caught off guard, especially you got families. You know, because mm-hmm. um, Ford is already doing layoffs. Mm. The tariffs have hit them and they're about to start laying off. I can't remember how many jobs it was, but it was at least a thousand. Oh, wow. See, see, and the tariffs and stuff are probably also from uh, the the international stuff that Trump began in, right? With, mm-hmm. yeah. with like China and them. Mm-hmm. And, and we putting tariffs on them, they putting tariffs on us, and now it's affecting these these businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's now getting folk in trouble. Mm-hmm. One another thing that I wanted to mention is uh, because I recently read an article, I cannot find that article again. But people need to also potentially brace themselves for having to pay some taxes this upcoming April um, because of uh, I read an article that said. Uh, people's withholdings have not like been 100% the way that they're supposed to. So like if you've been seeing extra money on your taxes, uh, on your paycheck all year, Uh um, Uh that might reflect the fact that like you're getting what would have been your refund and you could potentially owe money. Uh, I was talking to somebody and they were like, oh, usually around this time of year, the government will have taken out, you know, $10,000 already. They've only taken out 6,000. And so also be prepared because some people who have never paid taxes Mm -hmm. uh, might be paying taxes or your refund might be way smaller than you were expecting. So just get prepared for that, folks. Mm, yeah. no, that's, that's important because I know because it is one of the big things off taxes. Uh, Trump's tax plan was that people were going to get nice refunds, but if they're already getting it now. <laughs> yeah, oh, I had man. to change mine like sad. in the middle because I was like, something ain't right. Like, it's not enough getting out. And yeah, so I had to change mine. Like, oh, man. yeah. So you did change your. Actually, the uh, IRS. 
back in like June or July, they actually made an announcement for people mm-hmm. to check their withholdings to make yeah. sure they were getting enough taken out. Yeah. Because in the beginning, when I, when I, when in the beginning, they hadn't updated their calculator on the website. So like when the tax reform came out, there was no way for you to really determine like if you would actually have like an increase in pay or anything like that because the calculators weren't up to date and everything. So yeah, by the time June came around, they definitely notified people like calculators are up, like you need to check. And, you know, I went and checked. I was like, oh, hold up. Mm -mm. I need to change this. Um, Cause I was, you know, I do not like, oh, (laughs) I owed last year. I was like, that's not fun. (laughs) Yeah. My first year teaching, I don't know what I did on my tax return, on my tax, uh, what is it, the, um, the, what is it, what is it called? I don't even know. The W-4? Yeah, W-4. When you got to fill out before, anyway, how many taxes they take. I don't know what I think. I think I put an extra one somewhere where I shouldn't have. Zero, zero, zero. I owed, I was like, uh, I owed like $100. I was so mad. <laughs> I was like, how is this possible? What did I do? I'm finally making money. I'm out of grad school. And then I'm like, I should get some money back. And that first year I got hit with that O. I was like, nope, no more. I went the next day, changed that joint. I'm like, what I got to do? Like, oh, you got to put a zero in here? I was like, zero. Yes, always choose that zero, honey. You do you get fat paychecks? But do you uh-huh. know that the government does your taxes anyway? They know what you're gonna owe, and and for some reason, like TurboTax and all these different people have lobbied so that we mm-hmm. do our own taxes, which suck because it's like they already do it. Like they already do the taxes. It it really should just be a conversation of. Do you wanna? Do you want us to take out the most, or do you want us to take out the least? And then, and that should be the end of the conversation. I should not have to go and fill out, have to Google like, what does this line mean when it says like, do you like, do you want to claim yourself or any other dependent? <laughs> like, like you already know the government knows. Just let them do it. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, I heard that too. Yeah. Business, business influence and government. Yeah, you go. Mm-hmm. Always. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, all right. Well, this has been a great conversation. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we appreciate Dr. Hardy, the mm-hmm. homie, coming to talk to us today. Yeah. Catch us up. And definitely learned a lot about a little, learned a lot more about cancer than I thought I would in this conversation. <laughs> I knew a, a lot about it, but I think you did a really good job at like breaking it down. I'm sure our listeners will get a lot from that too. Um, and now, now we know we got our, our cancer correspondent. If we got any more questions, we got to bring you off a little bit. Yeah, you know, please. For the latest research. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yeah, no, yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate you time take time talk to us, Shana, and uh, yeah. you know we'll be in touch. Um, but as always, for you know those of you listening, continue to rate and review us on. Um, social media and on our on iTunes, okay, Black and Highly Dangerous. Visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to engage with us and keep up with our latest content. If you want to be a guest on our podcast or if you have topic ideas, email us at bhdpodcast at gmail.com. Um, other than that, follow us on social media at bhdpodcast. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, and continue to share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies, and continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. 
If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.